Hey there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. And now, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and today on Wandering DMs, we're going to talk about flying in Dungeons and Dragons. How do you get in the air? How can you stay there? Should it be easy for your players or should it be hard? We'll talk about that and a whole bunch of other things today on Wandering DMs. Before we dive into that, I uh, will remind everyone, as always, that at the end of the show, we will be hosting our after party chat. That is a live video chat with Dan and I and all of our patrons. You can join that chat by simply joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Join at any tier, that'll get you an invite to our private Discord server where we host the chat. And uh, get that done now in an hour at around 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll be over there uh, to chat with you all. We love that every week. Uh, and I think this is a good time to talk about flying in D&D because it came up in uh, the Book of War show that uh, I had uh, Thanksgiving Day afternoon with Isabel a couple days ago, and a couple of our, uh, at least one of our viewers on Discord said that they had coincidentally been dealing with flying issues in a couple different systems just this past week. So uh, it's, it's on a lot of our minds at the moment. You know, and maybe some of us are like flying for the uh, vacation weekend and having issues in airports or things like that. So may perhaps that's why it's on our minds at the moment. Mm. And hopefully everybody gets back home safe, of course, if you're in that situation. <laughs> If you're watching us on a mobile phone trapped in an airport, we wish you the best. <laughs> Jeez, I hope not. I hope not. I managed to catch a little bit of your uh, of your game, Dan, um, and I, I quite was quite pleased to be able to say that I indeed indeed watched the game on Thanksgiving Day. Yes, <laughs> we were thrilled about. It. We were thrilled about. It. I think a number of people were like knocked out by tryptophan because because near the like the back half, like a whole bunch of extra people tuned in, which was which was great to see because it was a really great climax. If you if you haven't seen our Thanksgiving show, you should you should watch that one of our better games actually. Yeah, which was, was great. Good. So. So and and um, and of course that game uh, had um, uh, myself uh, playing a super high level uh, uh, lord against Isabel to multiple lords on griffins. So Isabel was moving around uh, multiple figures uh, with uh, griffin riders, and we you know we use um, a system of movement that I do try to enforce that's very similar to classic D and D actually. And there's a lot of um, a lot of systems that have gotten away from tracking that kind of maneuverability, but it's a real core part of early D and D. And so I, you know, I, you know, kind of shave it off, kind of iron it down a little bit. But I still like to try to enforce that, and it gives some kind of interesting texture to the game. I think. Dan, when you proposed this topic originally, uh, you had mentioned wanting to talk specifically about flying mounts. Um, which I kind of scratched my head over because I, as I think about it, I don't think I've ever seen, used, or played in a game where there were flying mounts. Never seen it happen. I keep, I will, I, I keep brushing up closely against it. I will confess that I haven't had, um, well, you know, with the, with the sole exception of when you guys playing in Outdoor Spoliation charmed a dragon, and use that uh, uh, to right. carry around that's the entire right. party. That's right. That's right. I, I mean, I don't. Yeah, that's an interesting point, right? We were using it for sort of large scale campaign travel, as I recall, right? We were like going right. from location to location. I'm, I can't remember if the dragon was present in a tactical sense, but it was definitely being used for kind of like fast travel, if you will. Correct. Uh, which is interesting. Correct. Which is, but which is, that, yeah. Yeah. That said, I've certainly seen plenty of uses of the fly spell of rooms of flying, of flying carpets, of all kinds of things, uh, winged boots, any, all the stuff that gives you flight. And I've seen a lot of that across, across the years of campaign play and, and convention play. So, Agreed. I think when I, when I had a long-running uh, BX campaign and the characters got to you know around name level, everyone had long-distance flying. There was enough rooms of flying or carpets of flying that it was just expected the whole 
not a huge party, but the entire party would just always be traveling overland by flight all the time, which was super convenient for them. Right. Well, I certainly have some anecdotes from play I can share, but I'm kind of curious, Dan, what, what, what do you want to cover here when as we talk about flying? Like, what are the major issues that we're facing with flying? Well, first of all, I might ask, like, the, the, the standard traditional D&D rules for flying, I might, I might quiz folks, where do they come from? Where do they, where, who, who had the primary hand in creating them, or where did they come from? Do you, do you know offhand, Paul? Um, well, I, I certainly have a guess. Um, I, I would assume since um, there's grand tradition of old school D&D of simply taking rules from other systems, uh, that they simply took a, a World War II flying game, probably, uh, oh, it's the one that, right, didn't Gygax work on one? Um, oh, they play it every year at, at GaryCon, and now it's, the name of it mm -hmm. is just escaping yep. me. Uh, Mike Carr wrote it, right? Great, great. You're so, yeah. you're, you're, you're so I mean, very I'm so close. close. I just can't get the um, name into my brain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, there are two. Interestingly, there are two oh, okay. names to it, actually. Okay. Yeah, because they renamed it at one point. But maybe you could bring up, uh, so, so Paul is basically correct. Um, the, the, the traditional D&D rules come right out of a war game that predates D&D. Uh, maybe you could bring up the, um, uh, the, the, the red dotted image that I've got ah, there. There you go. Fight in the Skies. Yes, yes. Right in the Skies, uh, which you're right, written by Mike Carr, I think around 1970 or 69 or something like that initially. Later on, you notice that this was initially published by Gaiden Games. Later on, this was pulled into TSR and they renamed it Dawn Patrol is what it was, but it's basically the same rules. Gotcha. Um, so the, 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 um, the original D&D you know, &D designers love this game, uh, really influential to them. Um, it's, it's World War One. It's biplanes in World War One for what it's worth. Yeah, and uh, you know, among, right. And yep. did, you played this at GaryCon, right? With Mike Carr? Did you did you get to play in it? Not with Mike. Um, I okay. had I, I played um, I played uh, the 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 ship game. <laughs> Don't give okay. up the ship. Personally, with Mike running, actually, this I did get in a game of Fight in the Skies. Uh, that was uh, about eight people or so that was refereed by Skip Williams, the sage, um, who's among the big aficionados of this game. And look, I will say this. It's a, by my standards, it's a complicated game. Um, in about two hours of play, I think we did about two turns. So I think we were running approximately one turn of play per hour is what was happening there. Wow. And very complicated charts. And you have to, you know, track everybody's speed, location, elevation, you know, damage locations, flyer skill. And every single person at the table has to track all of that stuff for every single plane. So there's a lot of, at least in my experience, there's a lot of just kind of, frankly, spreadsheet work mm -hmm. at the table. And um, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think there was a point, I think there was a point in my life where I would be very attracted to that, where I'd say, Oh, it's a challenging game that maybe not, you know, and I would, I would like to seek mastery of it to prove, like, frankly, how clever I am. And I will confess that I probably don't, you know, we're in the computer age now. I don't seek out stuff that's that complicated now. And I'm guessing you probably wouldn't want to publish a game like this now, but it's, it's pretty elaborate. Let's put it like that. You know, I, it's pretty I always, elaborate. It, when, we, when we talk about games like this, it was funny. Uh, I've, I've been to... Over the holiday, I actually went to several cases of uh, board game, you know, whether it was uh, just family playing board games around the Thanksgiving table or a, a you know, Black Friday board game gathering of a bunch of friends that I went to. Um, I was talking to some folks about like, oh, isn't it, you know, from our childhood, we remember board games where there was just not so many options, right? There was much, it was much simpler. You're playing like Clue or Monopoly. Like now there's this explosion of board games. And there's all these board games to play. Did these games not exist when we were younger? And I thought, oh, well, no, they definitely did exist, right? Like, for sure, in the 70s, there were a lot of very complex board games out there. Just not a lot of people playing them. They were much more niche. They didn't really enter the mainstream yet. And the game that always jumps into my brain is Magic Realm. Magic Realm from the 70s, oh, yep. uh, which I have a copy of on my, on my uh, shelf here that I've never played. Because every time I open it and I look at it, I just go, oh, my God, I just can't. I just can't. So complicated, so much math, so much record keeping. I'm just like, uh, I've lost the will to play already. <laughs> just by looking at the guy of course, in the box. 
I, I feel that, you know, the, the 60s and 70s obviously were the heyday, right? Really pri right prior to computer gaming coming on the scene, were really the heyday of Avalon Hill and a little later on SSI, of course. And they were yeah. publishing lots, lots of war games. And I guess I was fortunate in Maine as I did have in the, in the I, actually, I think it was in the Maine Mall, actually, um, they had a big gaming store. At least my recollections, I'd walk in, they just had rows and rows and rows of these amazing hundreds and hundreds of these amazing war games that I kind of wanted all of them. And, you know, what I did pick out, I think at age eight was, was uh, Bismarck second edition. Yep. And I think as I've yep. said before, love that game to death. Occasionally you can get Isabel here to play it with me. There's an advanced version of the rules that never in my life have I gotten anybody else to ever play with me. I've played it solo. <laughs> <laughs> and the advanced rules are so incredibly overwhelming of like, you know, measuring every particular inch of armor on every separate part of a battleship and what the penetration of different gun gauges is across different distances. No one, no one has ever, <laughs> no one has ever manned up thinking of that. that that's, just, that's just exhausting. Just the <laughs> Oh, it looks, just, it's oh. so good though. It looks so amazing on the page. It's like, oh, I want all oh, that God. stuff. I want all of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know. I don't know. My tastes have changed over the years. I just don't want that complexity anymore. Or maybe we're spoiled now that computers do that stuff for us. You know, I played a bunch of uh, Return to Dark Tower recently, frankly, and that game's pretty complex. But but I don't have to think about it because there's an app and it just runs. And I don't have to bother with all the complexity. Yeah. Kids these days. Anyway, <laughs> going, going off on a bit of a bit of a tangent here. Talking about so so. I, I'm guessing what we're driving at here is that this implementation of of flying in D and D is probably way more complex than either of us wants. I think I I, I, the, the, I the evolution has to make it simpler and simpler, right? Yeah. So if you look okay. across the years, the short story is that it that more and more of the details get squeezed out, and you can actually tell the same story about Warhammer. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. you know traditional. Um, uh, traditional Warhammer did the kind of the same evolution. So um, I might look at the second image now, actually. So in particular, it was Dave Arneson that adored this and very directly, it's got the orange dot on it, if you can find that, and very directly, um, uh, you know, in some sense, it was inspired or rewrote Mike Carr's Fight in the Skies for D&D &D fighting. And... Um, uh, our friend Griff Morgan of the Secrets of Blackmore film actually has Dave Arneson's as a copy of Dan Arson's original draft. And he didn't call it Fight in the Skies. He called it Battle in the Skies, right? Directly, okay. direct homage to Mike Carr's game. And he showed that off. Uh, Griff showed that off at GaryCon a couple of years ago. And you can see this manuscript. It Look, there's a bunch of pages in it. I think there's like 20-ish eh, pages or something like that. And on that page on the right, he's he's listing all of the flying monsters in D&D in the same order that you see them in original D&D and specifically pointing out uh, what their fly rates are and what their ranges are. Um, and then the sheet in front, he's mapping out on the same kind of staggered uh, grid that Fight in the Skies uses. Um, it's topologically the same as a hex grid. Um, the different maneuvering that different types of flyers possibly have. And he's actually like drawn them all in there, which is kind of interesting um, artifact. Um, and uh, Griff, was, at, at some point in the past, Griff was kind enough to show me a couple extra pages from this document. Um, and he's also shared some stuff on the Secrets of Blackmore website, which is kind of interesting. And if you look at the, the next image over that you pulled up briefly there, Paul, you can see... He's got six different classes of maneuverability, and they are detailed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're pretty detailed. There's not just there's not just like one rule of like it gets a little bit you know less maneuverable. It's like everyone has a totally unique movement mechanism if you're in class one, two, three, four, five, or six. So, um, and, and I believe that the, uh, his rules include everything out of fighting the skies. You've got different maneuvers and wing overs and barrel rolls and chasing wonder, and shadowing. And 
Dan, what, 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 I wonder about the usability of this in D&D. So, like, I could certainly see for sure you've got, you know, uh, my fighter hops on his griffin and goes and fights the dragon. And, okay, great, we're going to do a, you know, aerial combat that is basically yeah. fight in the skies, but just with dragons and griffins. Get that. But I would think more commonly in your average D&D campaign, what's going to happen is you've got some kind of ground action happening and a few flyers as well. Right. So do, do these rules combine at all well with normal D&D tactics or is this really just a completely separate game and the two kind of pull or push against each other? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I, I think this is a legitimate question. Yeah. 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 Very legitimate. It is. I, I clearly it's coming from fight in the skies. And so I think that you did stumble into it's basically a separate system. And as some of our commentators are, are talking about on the chat right now, the, um, you know, the, the, the systems in original D&D for aerial fighting and ship fighting are originally drafted by Arneson. He loved that kind of wargaming stuff. They are kind of basically separate systems. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's also interesting in original D&D when this appears, kind of cut down greatly and edited by Gygax, right? The aerial combat comes first before the ship combat, which is which is not, I think, what you'd, you'd think you'd expect things to get more exotic as you go deeper in the book, like land combat, sea combat, air combat. But the air combat was actually more of a priority, apparently. They were, they were more interested in this. Um, and I agree. Uh, to my knowledge, in I mean, Arneson's version, I don't know of land versus air stuff, but there is a little bit in original D&D. It is it is called Dungeons and Dragons, not Dungeons and Sea Monsters. So I, I guess I could see why maybe aerial combat's a little more important. Uh, but my gut tells me my gut tells me that this probably suffers from the exact same problems that you've been trying to solve with Book of War, right? Where, right? The, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the point of Book of War is to present a war game that meshes easily with standard D and D play, so that you can get you can adjudicate your mass combats in a D and D campaign and easily hop between them. I wouldn't be surprised if this has the same problem of every mass combat thing that we've seen uh, TSR try over the years, which is it doesn't mesh well with normal D&D, right? Fun game on its own on the side doesn't mesh well with D&D. I, I, I agree with that. I think that's a weakness. Thank you. And, th and thank you for, for calling out the, the point of, of uh, my Book of War game to try to try to resolve some of those issues. And I would also say that as written, right? And so, you know, many of our close friends um, are in the, uh, you know, Dave Arneson was a genius camp, right? Dave Arneson mm -hmm. was just a game design genius and just everything he touched turned, turned to gold. But even our friends that love this, they still shave stuff off out of, the, out of this game, right? So if they're gonna actually literally run Fight in the Skies, they don't do the segment by segment, you know, granular movement that's technically yeah. in there. Um, and so even even the biggest fans of Dave Arneson still shave off bits to try to make it a little bit more workable. And I, I frequently call, you know, Arneson's original drafts, um, you know, um, ambitious, mm -hmm. right? Uh, aspirational, right? It would be nice if this worked. There's some nice ideas here, but I don't see that he actually probably played it a whole heck of a lot. So crazy. how did, again, oh. the, the, the reason we're coming at this, of course, is that you, you, I assume, had flying units in the recent Book of War game. Right. And, and I assume that it was not purely an aerial combat, that there was land units as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we'll just, just to get out of the way, let's briefly yeah. just run through the other three images that I have, right? So okay. those, um, so maybe just bring up the green dot. So, so. Gygax cut that stuff down to about, I think, about four pages in original D&D, right? Has these maneuverability classes, right? And I guess there's, what, seven here, I guess? And mm -hmm. uh, you have to move a certain distance, and then you can turn a certain angle, right? And you've got mm -hmm. diving and climbing, and there's and it's, it's kind of an interesting section because it also has, unusually for D&D, it's got critical hits tables, and it's got bombing rules, and it's got shooting from the ground rules, and it actually has the clearest um, explanation of the falling damage rule. It's actually all in these just like like two or three pages, which is kind of interesting. Still has the maneuverability classes. If you move to the next one, Paul, um, here's uh, first edition AD&D, 
that has the six classes expressed kind of in this uniform, like what angle can you can you turn per turn? If you move to the next one, you'll see third edition mm -hmm. that still has these classes. Right now you've got five classes and that table at the bottom there in third edition is saying, um, uh, do you have a minimum forward speed? Can you hover? Yes or no? What angle can you make? And then I don't have an image for fifth edition because finally in fifth edition D&D, that's all gone. Gotcha. Um, and thank you to some of our patrons for confirming that on our Discord server uh, this morning, actually, because oh. uh, this, this tradition of these maneuverability classes and difference in angles in fifth edition, there's no difference. You've got a fly speed and you can move through the air at that speed. Right, but presumably by, by fifth edition, it's just flight is like any other form of movement, just it happens to be up in the air. Correct. And, and that's, and frankly, Correct. that's what I want. And that's how I've always run it in all my D&D games. Because, I mean, let's be honest, your your ability to turn while moving and, and all this stuff about maneuverability, like, I don't know that that's necessarily unique to flying. Yes, you, you know, especially when you're talking about planes, obviously, you need forward momentum to stay aloft. But, um, you know, I don't know if I was in a, on a horseback versus in a horse drawn cart or wagon. I'm sure that these things also have turn rates, right? But we don't really talk about that. So why why do we need that for flying? That's interesting. So I suppose we could like we could go and take um, take car wars and uh, modify that a little bit to cart wars. <laughs> cart wars is the new is our is our new D and D supplement for traditional D and D, right? Oh dear. Oh please no. Great idea, Paul. I'm so glad you came up with that. Yes, you will get credit. Oh my gosh! Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! You know, it's playing. Um, you know, it's it's funny. It's funny you bring this up. So, um, just last month, uh, I played in uh, a friend of ours uh, runs runs a game every Halloween that is a zombie survival game. He's got a huge miniatures board. Uh, everybody's playing a single character, and there's just hordes of zombies on the board, and you're trying to escape. You also get points for killing zombies, and so at the very end, there's like some tally of who who won. Though, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on early on of people trying to uh, escape. Anyway, I bring this up because this year's theme. There's a he's got a different theme every year. This year's theme was Old West, and it included a part of the game where we had to jump onto horses or wagons to escape. And at that point, we were trying to, I believe, catch a train. And he had a whole second board that was just a train on a track, and we're yeah. on horseback trying to chase it down. And it was very interesting because he did this thing where basically the train was in a fixed position on the board. We're, we're kind of yep. behind it, yep. you know, a few feet behind it. And we can try, you know, making rolls of like riding rolls or maneuverability rolls, essentially, to try and catch up to it. And then he also had terrain that he would drop on the front of the board near the, near the uh, train. And the terrain would move, right, to simulate that the right. train and, right. the, and the chase and everything is just flying by as we're... Racing down. This oh, that's nice. Track. It was actually very clever. It was a nice way to do it, right? Where like most of the movement, frankly, was the terrain going really fast, and there yeah, and yeah. Then there was a lesser yeah. movement of us trying to catch up to the train or trying to maneuver side to side to avoid the you know the obstacles. That's great. It really reminds me of like really old, uh, really really old movie production where you'd have yeah. a backdrop, right, yep. that was scrolling by <laughs> while the actors weren't actually moving. That's yeah. great. That yeah, was pretty much pretty much that. Pretty much that. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it, was, it was very fun. It was a, it was a clever way to, to do that kind of scene. Uh, anyway, awesome. sorry, I seem to be on uh, Tangent Express today. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm glad 5th Edition has finally got us to the point of what I want to use and what I use in my old school games, okay. which is frankly just, you know, yes, there's flight simply allows you to move in the vertical uh, as well as the horizontal uh, planes. Okay. Right? Eh. That's that's generally how I want to do it, and um, usually I find most games I've played, players are either moving horizontally or vertically. There's not usually a lot of like angled movement, right? And right. the on the rare occasion where there is, I'm happy to just get out a tape measure and just sort of go eh, about that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Interesting. I will yeah. say that for Book of War, what I've done is I've shaved it down to basically just one maneuverability class. And mm -hmm. my rationale for it is most everything we're dealing with is really big, right? So dragons, griffins, wyverns, you know, big stuff. Oh, 
that mm-hmm. presumably isn't super maneuverable. <clears throat> so I, I basically just take that one class mm-hmm. in D and D, uh, and I have a, a a maneuvering arc, right? I have a curved okay. um, ruler basically that just put it down, and you can go at this angle around this arc, and this is this is specifically how we measure it. So everything uses the same rules. Is that for, um, and for turning? I, and, correct. That's for turning. Do, do, but do you also deal with like climbing and diving and? We do. Yeah. And okay. and I and again I simplify that to just however. And this is like half of what's an original D and D is if you move forward twelve inches, then you can either go up or down six inches for free. That's it. I don't make okay. any difference between up or down. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, I think for something that's really big and lumbering, like. You're not going to take a 747 and go straight. You're going to dive down like this, like you would with a with a fighter plane. So I think I'm pretty happy with that simplification. I've you know does I kind that, of modified a couple of things to get to that point. Does that allow for things like solo wizards who've cast the fly spell or or levitating creatures? Like what about a what about <laughs> okay, a beholder now? <laughs> Let me just throw up Julian's snarky comment that he just put his. He said, "I think dragons should be able to do Immelman turns." Julian, get out of here! Get stop! <laughs> get, go to go to Gary Con and play Fight in the Skies if you want that. Um, <laughs> and and the rest of you should too. It's great, yeah, it's yeah. A wonderful time. Um, so that actually is an issue. So Paul, you're asking about um, um, wizards. And that is honestly a, a, a trouble point. That's hmm. actually a trouble point for me that I've very much been hand-waving in Book of War and trying to avoid the issues of uh, wizards being active and actually flying. And in particular, let me just throw up one other thing here. So a couple minutes ago, William, when we were talking maneuverability, said this. He said, basically, all I need is, can you hover, yes or no? Mm-hmm. And I agree with William that that is a really critical question in traditional D&D because remember spell casting, right, by the book, by the books, uh, you can't move and mm-hmm. cast a spell in the same turn in traditional D&D. Therefore, if you have a flying mechanism that you have a minimum fly speed, then that means you can't be flying, you can't be casting in the same time. Mm, as of you know as of third edition that's not an you know third fourth fifth edition that's not an issue but up through up through second edition you can't move and cast at the same time therefore flying can't be combined with casting unless you can hover mm-hmm. and so if you look at where Gygax kind of built out you know fleshed out those rules in first edition um it specifically says if you're on on any flying mount can't cast right flying mm-hmm. mounts you got to have wing mounts. You must have a. Uh, you got to move at least half your speed. Therefore, and it's unstable. Therefore, you can't cast uh, Bruma flying. You can't cast on, right? Too mm-hmm. unstable. This kind of stuff. The only the only thing in the entire game that allows you to fly and cast is the wizard's fly spell. Interesting to levitate. So, mm-hmm. if if when I've spent some time thinking about this, this makes the fly spell extraordinarily powerful. Because it's basically the only thing in the entire game of anything can fly thing get up in the air and also cast spells, and mm. it's specifically in first edition. It specifically says you're allowed to do that, and that's effectively the only thing that allows you to do that. So for me, if I think about a war game, that opens up major problems. Like wizard casts fly, casts protection from normal missiles, takes a fireball wand goes up in the air over an army and just blasts them to smithereens and they can't respond anyway. I'll point out that in Chainmail, right, Chainmail assumes that all wizards have protection from normal missiles, assumes that they can cast fireballs as much as they want, right? The only mm-hmm. thing that's not, the only piece that's missing there is that weirdly Chainmail doesn't have the fly spell. So Chainmail never had to deal with this issue. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a major like campaign problem of, I would post the question to our viewers, like in traditional D&D, why isn't there one wizard flying over every army, destroying them at will? Because they're basically can be out of range of all the missile weapons. They're immune anyway. Why doesn't that happen? 
I know, I know, Dan, that you're you're because of the context of this coming up from Book of War that you're really thinking about this in mass battle situations. But my brain immediately goes into D and D scenarios, and sort of like, where, when is this going to come up in a in a standard D and D campaign? And I feel like, well, that's one of the earliest things for me, frankly, especially with like if you're running a whole campaign of across the spread of levels. You know, a fun challenge I think for a low level party is coming across uh, an evil enemy or an enemy wizard who has the fly spell. Right, because that's very okay. interesting, especially okay. if he's got some minions. Right, so you go into his lair, or maybe they're out in a field somewhere. Even better, right? Space, space supply is important. Um, and you're fighting, you know, whatever his, you know, skeletal legion, and then he pops up into the air and starts raining spells down on you. And like, what do you do about that? Especially when you're low level, maybe you don't have access to your own flight stuff. Like, you're you're limited at this point to missile weapons at best, right? And I think I think that's interesting. I think that's a fun, you know. And then starting to find ways. Well, how do we cleverly use the terrain to our advantage? How do we take cover? How do we, you know, get out of his blast range? How do we coax him down out of the sky to to get him? Okay. I think that's that's really interesting stuff interesting. to me. And then and then further on, like as you start to go up on levels, I think that um, you know the scenario where where I saw this come up uh, a lot, frankly, is in uh, both the Big Bad and in our. Sure. Uh, earlier versions of that game that we were running using old school D&D at conventions, which was just called Boss Fight for Breakfast, but we used that same scenario kind of whittled down. For those who haven't seen The Big Bad, first of all, why not? It's on our YouTube channel. Go check it out. Uh, but the scenario in that, uh, spoiler alert, is that the party is at one end of the board. They need to get to the other end of the board, which is up a high kind of um, mountain, right? It's a, not a mountain. It's a, it's a stalagmite, right? I think. Uh, yeah, it's a big stalagmite where there's the enemies are up there up on this spot. But anyway, the point is, it's like 50 feet in the air or something, and there's a big plane between you and them, and if you cross it, the thing is there's a whole bunch of purple worms in there, and they will jump up out of the ground and eat you. And a very good way of getting out of that is to fly. Right? If you fly, then you're not on the ground, you're not the purple worms tremor senses and picking you up. They can't attack. That's a great way to get around it. Um, and it, so it was always interesting to me to watch both in the big bad or even more so in our earlier games, how much flying does the party bring? Right. And it's sort of like, right. it reminds me, frankly, of another progression. I think you see a lot of, of like introduction of say invisibility and silence to the group, you know, that at a certain level, at a certain progression, inevitably all of your characters have it. Right. So then you can just start getting into these weird right. scenarios where like, we just assume the whole party is invisible and silent which like really changes the game. But yes. it's more interesting to me when half the party is, right? I find that really exciting and fun, right? Because you're, you're trying to balance, okay, well, some of our party members can do this, some not. I don't know if you remember this, Dan, in Boss Fight for Breakfast, the characters I was using, one of the characters had uh, a, a flying carpet. And that's like my favorite thing in the world to play with because right. it can hold maybe three yeah. players. So again, not the whole party. You maybe get right. half yep. your party onto this carpet one of the people is controlling it, right? And so you've got this wonderful level of kind of team coordination going on. We've got the people who are on the carpet trying to coordinate with the person who's controlling the carpet, trying to coordinate with the people on the ground. And I, I find that, I don't know, that tactically just, just makes me smile. That's a great observation because I feel like over time, I feel like the evolution of a lot of rules like that tends to turn them into it can deal with a whole standard sized party to make life convenient for everybody. And, and I'm thinking of like the teleport spell that initially mm -hmm. was just the caster. And then it was the caster and maybe one other person. And then it was the caster and a certain weight. And then it was a caster and four other people. And I think currently in fifth edition, I think it's a caster and eight people, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically to support the whole party um when that happens so actually i i, I after this show i'll probably look up what what the carpet of flying does in fifth edition because i that's almost really i wouldn't be I super surprised if they expanded that i mean that's again like again one of my favorite things to see in a game and i've seen this countless times right where like okay there's a big chasm or a, a scary lake that probably has monsters yeah. in it that we need to cross to get to the island mm -hmm. And you've got right. a wizard who's maybe got levitate or fly, and they're like, "Well, I could take the end of a rope and go over there, but now I'm the wizard sticking my neck out, right? Now I'm yes, I'm like the yes, weakest exactly. character is now going to go out <laughs> potentially to this yes. highly dangerous place to try and affix some rope contraption so that the rest of the party can join me. I think that's super fun. I love that. Right. Those are great moments of tension. That's a that, yeah. really great point. 
Really great point. Yeah, I, I, I like that you're sort of you, that those moments basically accidentally turn into like a, a, a fox chicken grain puzzle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> they do. They do. I love it. It's delightful. It's delightful. I don't know. I remember some very, very fun high action moments. I would love to go back and rerun the big bad scenario using old school D&D for a group because yeah, I don't know. Right. I think I had the characters we were using for that, like really tuned just so, so that like the, the yeah. select, because also I think I had more, and this is true of the Big Bad too, right? We had more characters than you could possibly bring. So it was very interesting right. to see groups of like, well, which characters are you bringing to this one? Right. Right. You know, I, I think we always used to tell people, especially at conventions, it was like, make sure as you're looking at the characters and picking out which ones you want to bring, look at their equipment as well, because yeah, there's a wizard who has kind of like crappy spell selection, but he's also got a wand of fireballs. And there's a thief right. who generally doesn't look awesome, but that's the character with the flying carpet, right? Like, so it's yeah. Yeah. always exactly. fun to me to watch people kind of figure that out and try to strategize. I don't know. That's, I feel like I'm digging at, what I'm digging at here is actually one of the things that I love about old school D&D that maybe is a little different from modern D&D in that it's a lot about the combinatorics of how how the different character types play off each other and combine in interesting right. ways. Whereas I think modern D&D is more about taking your turn to shine, right? It's, I, I have all these abilities in my character and I'm just waiting for the plays to come around so that I get the spotlight for a few minutes to do something cool rather than I'm coordinating with these three other people and together we're doing something cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, a, I think that's well observed. Yeah, I think you're right about that. <clears throat> Anyway, I digress. <laughs> or maybe I don't. Maybe this is the meat of the topic. I think it's good. And, you know, on that point, uh, our viewer Anate uh, in, the, in the comments is saying, is just looked up, fifth edition flying carpets can handle different weights based on size. Uh, the average one holding 400 pounds. So I guess that would be, I guess that would be, I guess it's about the same. I guess that would be about three characters, including equipment, maybe by my rough estimate, maybe two. Yeah. yeah that sounds okay. That's fair. Thank you. For, thank you for looking that up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a good, I think that's a, I think that's an interesting point um, about having some of the, some of the party with that capacity and thinking about now, how do we coordinate as a team together? And I, and I, 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 you know, sometimes there's a bit of an attention around that. I think very early on, I was running a, a first edition game at one point and one of the characters you know, came out to be, they had exceptional strength. Like they were, a, they were a fighter and they came out with 18 slash 99 strength, which, you know, was rolled right in front of me. And we were, and we were using the, the social class table and they rolled a hundred on that. So they were like the highest class possible. And I, you know, so I, I announced it that, you know, you're the, you're the king's son and you get extra equipment and you're super powerful. And there was actually a little bit of grousing from other players about, well, this is this is unbalanced and it's unfair they have so much. And my rejoinder was, isn't this interesting? Like form, I mean, th there's your quarterback, right? The quarterback mm. can't win the event all on their own. What are you going to do about forming the party around that strong character? Um, and I thought that was an interesting challenge, but those particular players didn't didn't see it immediately the same way. Um, which I thought was interesting. So I can kind of see how the game has evolved for everyone to get get their own limelight. But it's, you're right; that's not that's not the traditional D and D that we normally play. I know. I definitely enjoy because I feel like there's more engagement around the table, especially especially if the moment is tense and you're trying to plan something fairly intricate. And now people are standing up and leaning in and shouting at each other. No, you got to do this. I got to do that. You know, if you, if you move the carpet over here and I'll jump off and tackle the, you know, <laughs> the evil wizard, whatever, right? Like, oh, it's just so much fun. So, oh, that's, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I will say this now. That's so, great. you know, um, here's here. I have a question for you, Dan. In, in, um, yeah. in the big bad and in those early boss fight games, we were playing absolutely with miniatures, right? In in the boss yeah. fight games, we just had a a whiteboard or whatever grid kind of thing with drawings on it. I don't think we're hauling out 3D terrain, but obviously the big bad fancy 3D terrain. Do you think as you start to introduce characters with flight, you know some you know some or all, 
you think that that kind of starts to force your hand into miniature use. Well, that's really interesting. Um, it's cert I'll say it certainly whets my appetite to try it. It certainly whets my appetite to, oh, now I get to, again, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, Arneson's rules and stuff like that. And frequently the first thing is like, oh, now I get to try this out. I get to try out this subsystem that previously I haven't been able to. And maybe that's a trap on my part. Um, but um, it's a good point. I, I mean, I just, I just mean that like, you know, it, I think that it, you know, as we start to think in three-dimensional space and, and flying characters that, that potentially have to constantly keep moving, the ability to track that in our brains, I think, becomes much, much harder. And so, like, leap playing at that point without miniatures is actually significantly difficult, I think. Right? As, even just as DM, maybe, what, am I drawing sketches? Yeah. Am I keeping notes? Like, how, how am I tracking where in physical space, the, you know, three-dimensional space all the characters are? I think that gets hard. This is a good point. I think with maybe just one, right? So when you had your party mm -hmm. riding on one single dragon, right? Mm -hmm. I could handle that as DM, right? So I had, yeah. I had at least one or two encounters that showed up and I could handle one was okay. And you're right. If I, I guess if I started having four on each side running around in space, yeah, I, I, I just right off the top of my head, I don't think I'd be able to handle that without miniatures. So I think I probably would have to do that. That's a really That's good point. Interesting, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. And I've had, it's funny you know, I've had definitely, I was going to say, it definitely, it changes my opinion, right? Like generally I prefer to play without miniatures. Generally, like I would rather use theater of the mind yeah. and describe in words what things look like and have everybody imagining the scene. And then you introduce a couple of flyers and I'm like, yeah, let's get the minis out. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think in my long BX campaign, you know, the, they might travel overland uh, by flying and then just, you know, uh, Superman down on the ground for a fight. Right. Mm. And so mm -hmm. I didn't have to. Uh, we weren't normally dealing with the flying. You'd want the fighters in melee and things like that. Yep. So yep. Um, that was pretty efficient. Mm -hmm. This is a good point. I haven't had yeah. I haven't had like four player characters all zooming around in separate locations. Yeah, I think that would be, you know, unless you're doing something where, you know, formations are happening and like, it's just much more discreet, I think, like, yeah, I don't know, especially, especially if you start dealing with like, yeah, we have mixed, we have land and air, and we've got, you know, three dimensional terrain, yeah. like my, essentially, even if I was trying to do it without miniatures, I almost want a little miniature board behind the screen for me just to track all the stuff. And then why not just right put it in front of everybody? Right. Now, just as a little bit of an aside, you just mentioned unless there's like a formation, and I will say that I tried to implement that in Book of War, like season three. You go back a season, you'll actually see uh, me and Isabel playtesting units that meant to represent a mass of flyers in formation that seemed like an idea at this time, and it was a huge flop. Not to really? no pun intended, a huge flop, and oh. I, I yanked it out of the game. What, why was and it the such problem? A flop? Yeah. Okay. So item number one, it just didn't conceptually make sense, right? So the flyers in D, it would be one thing if they had guns, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had like a you had a row of like biplanes and you could just like strafe the ground, that would be mm -hmm. one thing. But of course, the vast majority of things in D and D are melee types. So your griffins, you know, your hippogriffs, your I don't know, dragon lancers, I suppose, right? They need to actually make melee contact. And it just conceptually doesn't make sense to have like 10 flyers stuck together, all smash into a unit together, right? Mm -hmm. You would certainly mm -hmm. want them separate. You'd want them to be separate targets. You'd want them to get better reconnaissance separately. You'd, you'd want them to be able to hit things unexpectedly. And it just doesn't make sense. They'd be one blob. Secondly, mm -hmm. the, the value of that piece was so hugely overwhelming that the price was like off the scale of anything else. And because of because of that enormous value, right? If if we if we had a debate about am I in contact or not, or can you turn five degrees or not, usually on our Brook of War games, you'll see us very, you know, diplomatically be like, well, take the quarter inch, take the half inch, whatever. It's okay. It doesn't make a huge difference. That's fine. But with this, 
it make it makes a difference of like that's half the value of my army that's either going to get wiped out or not. And so <laughs> we actually had these these much more intense debates that actually got very tense um, over the decision about whether your your giant super valued mass flyer dragons or whatever were succeeding at this move or not. And so both. You know, both from a realism standpoint, it didn't make sense. And from a gameplay standpoint, it kept breaking down. Um, so that's why if you look at the game last Thursday, you see we just have we just have solos. I have one high-level fighter and one griffin. And it's a reasonable value, and it's interesting. And um, it seemed, to my mind, it makes sense if I think about, you know, the last movie in Lord of the Rings or something like that with what the flyers were doing. They weren't, they weren't in formation, so... Um, that's, that was something I actually tried in book of war and I had to, I had to delete it. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't publish yeah. it like that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I mean, even as, even as I was saying about like, you know, it, it maybe it's easier when they're in formation just because you're tracking less things, I think, but then I, I can't imagine any game I've ever played. Again, I haven't played any games with, 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 uh, riders, right. I, I don't know. Like I'm trying to think of cases where I had flyers and I think of the big bed and the boss fight for breakfast. Heck. I think if you go back to oh no we didn't record it um the first half of dyson's delve like one of the big first monsters you face right. is the manticore right and that certainly that could be the party's first introduction maybe your second level group is facing a manticore and it's flying up and shooting tail spikes at you so i guess i could see a formation of manticores firing volleys of tail spikes or a formation of dragons <laughs> all breathing their breath weapons at the same time which is horrific <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, generally, like, I don't know, is that really valuable in a, or would it be better to have kind of a, you know, eight manticores just kind of dispersed and, you know, acting as individuals and peppering the field with the tail spikes? Maybe that's better. I think in reality, you'd, you'd prefer, you'd prefer that. I assume yeah, if I, right. if I was wanting my access to the, the army, archers, right. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. You'd, you'd want them working as skirmishers, I suppose you might say. Yeah. Now, yeah, on that yeah, point, yeah. okay. So, on, on a similar point of, of you know, monsters, you know, flying monsters in D&D, in your, in your conception of your, like, camp, your standard D&D campaign world, Paul, how common are flying maps? That, that actually was the thing that I wanted to talk about today. Maybe, maybe some future day we'll talk more about it, but, but how common are flying maps? Is it, like, unheard of? Do you think there's some high-level heroes with griffins like we were playing with on Thursday? Do your players commonly get flying mounts? I mean, as I think I said at the beginning of this, I've literally never played a game with them. Like it's 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 not just uncommon; it's never happened. I've never once played a game where players had flying mounts. I've certainly had players who could fly, but I never had them yep. have okay. you know griffin riders or you know catch some pegasi or whatnot. I remember hearing you talk about you had you were running um, some convention game right where. You had yeah. uh, essentially an aircraft carrier, right? You had your characters were on a boat, and then they <laughs> caught a flock of of pegasi and put some of their fighters on right. pegasi, and they kind of started to behave like an aircraft carrier, which is hilarious. And frankly, I was like, "Wow, I've I, I mean, as much as a trope as that is, I've literally never had a game where players capture even one pegasus. Never seen it. Yeah, they captured like twenty. That I and I it's was just wild. using standard original D and D, you know, yeah. wandering monster rules, and like, oh, uh, and and I was thinking, you know, it was entirely by accident. I had never thought about it. Something. It was really like one of those really marvelous, like you know, D and D improv moments. Of and and I thought this was just like a descriptive, like, oh, you see some pegasi, you know, a flock of pegasi fly through the air in original D and D. You can get like up to twenty of them. Great. And like, we want to capture them. I want to fly up. I want to cast web on them. And I'm like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Okay. <laughs> and that it totally worked. And they trapped it. And they're like, now we want to start training them. And we want our fighters to start like, you know, we had some, you know, uh, overland uh. travel. We had a number of days or weeks to go. And I'm like, okay. And then the next time you want to do that, we'll be making rolls about whether it works or not. And yes, they were having engagements of like the three fighters all taking off the front of the ship on Pegasi which was uh, quite amazing. And I will point out that I actually wrote about that on my blog at one point. And then one of them came to land and I'm like, great, let's roll a D20 to see how your landing skill is. Rolled a natural one, crashed, you know, World yeah. War II style, you know, the aircraft carrier ripped his own leg off on the critical hits table that I was using <laughs> at the time. Right, like, there you go. There's the, there's the, there's the pro and con risk and reward happening right there, buddy. Yeah. 
That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I would say in D&D for me, flyers much much more often come up first as enemies, right? Whether it's a dragon or a manticore or some, some flying monster. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then the yeah. players are maybe, maybe they've got a fly spell or maybe they have a potion of flying or something. So early on, you've got something like, oh, well, let's, you know, can we get our toughest fighter up in the air to go combat that thing? Otherwise, take cover, let's draw it down. Um, and frankly, um, frankly, most fights in most D&D campaigns I'm playing are indoors in some way, right? They're, That's true, yeah. Right? So how much does flying help, right? The, 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 even if you're in an underground complex and you go into, oh, you enter this huge cavern with this you know, giant ceiling that's hundreds of feet up in the air and you can, you know, something is flapping in the wind. I'm like, well, the players at least always have the option of, well, we're going to retreat back into the tunnel where it can't get us. Right, right. right. Yes. <laughs> right. True. Yeah, true. of course. True. Of course. <laughs> so I think that's much, that's been my experience with flying in D&D. It's you know, much less common and then it starts with the monsters and then maybe one or two players get into the air. And I don't think I've ever played a campaign or, or any D&D adventure where like all the, all the players could just fly all the time. I don't think I've ever seen that. So, I mean, I how address, you, so before we run out of time, off? yeah. Well, okay. So I want to, So Josh in the chat brought up a, an excellent point that, and I think the point that I was getting to myself was that in the earliest in the earliest versions of D and D, right, flying mounts were actually baked pretty deeply throughout a number of the materials, and one of them is if you look in original the original D and D castle table that I have right here, they have this table for basically the henchmen or the special guards that any castle owner has and fully half of them are flyers right sure. fully half of your normal like what, what kind of guards do you have in your castle are probably fighters on uh flying mounts and there's griffins and there's rocks and there's balrogs and there's manticores um and it's like almost half of any castle is going to have fly fighters on some multiple flying mounts as a matter of fact i mean it's um, it's a great defense right if you've got a big castle like don't even need a sally right? port get up in the air Off you right. go exactly right? and, and you got to right? defend yourself from dragon attacks right surely you got to defend yourself from exactly dragon right <laughs> it makes sense it makes sense yeah. and the other thing is in arneson's uh first fantasy campaign he has like what i'd call expanded you know mercenary lists and they and they they vary by country and they all include uh flying mercenaries mm -hmm. so he's got um i see like the duchy of 10 there has uh rock riders on the list you can buy a unit of a hundred men flying on rocks for a particular fixed cost you can get a hundred of them at a time right um you can get a a flock of a hundred griffins Right, and for what it's worth, they cost like twenty thousand or twenty-five thousand gold pieces, something like that. He was also a huge fan of, I believe, the gore novels. So he's got multiple entries for different types of tarns. And I'm not a huge gore expert, but he's got uh, tarns men. He's like for fifty thousand, you get a hundred. You've got cargo tarns, cargo flyers, right? <clears throat> Which I think I got. I got troop transports. I think. Um, so it's interesting to think about whether that's an interesting, uh, whether it's a viable addition to your equipment list of like, maybe when you get to a mid to high level and your characters have like some extra gold lying around, maybe just maybe open up, maybe you can just buy griffins or rocks or something like that and have some kind of like maybe high upkeep cost. I think that's in first edition. And maybe that's a good thing to actually open up as an expense to possibly high level characters because that actually is baked all through original D, &D materials hmm. Hmm. It's, it's fascinating it's yeah. 100 it, rocks I mean, josh 100 just to be clarified to our to our viewers that was that was a hundred unit there's a unit of a hundred rocks yeah available. i mean but but is, is it always <laughs> tied to i mean i guess it's not it seems to me like highly tied to domain play is that true or or no there's you're also here yes yeah here yes sure that's 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 and so I guess, like again, it's it's just a part of the game that I frankly never really played very much. Most right. most of my gaming is right. focused on lower level characters who, who are not at that level of doing domain play. Just didn't come up that often. 
I got to call out uh, Jerry McDonald's great comment here about uh, possibly having half things loaded into catapults, which is just uh, just delightful. Can, can we can we give them all uh, uh, featherfall rings? Right, I'm just imagining a castle with a whole bunch oh. of halflings and catapults with featherfall rings on. We just <laughs> and then they kind of drift down <laughs> on their way down. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Love it. That's bad fantasy. That's bad fantasy, Paul. And I, I, <laughs> I condemn. I accept a hundred rocks, flying wizards, <laughs> but, but yeah. having with feather fall, not on my watch. Not on my watch, sir. <laughs> oh man, I love it. All right, Dan. We are pretty much out of time. Any any final thoughts on uh, flying? Flying, you know, I, I, I actually like, you know, playing with trying out the original, you know, war gamey flying rules. And yes, it, you know, syncs best with like a, a domain level, high level war game kind of thing. Um, I think you make a good point, Paul, that for, you know, smaller scale D&D, right? And this is the way that the game's evolved to fifth edition, of course, not having that kind of complication uh, can make a lot of sense. But when you when you scale up to mass battles or something like that, I wouldn't want to use full on fight in the skies. I wouldn't want to use full on Arneson's original you know draft. I've, I've tried it, and it I can't say is it works super well or that I can get other players to play with me if I do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, but I you know maybe something you know cut down a little bit. Um, I think is a possibly a really interesting addition, and I'm still playtesting and still working out what makes sense for um, you know for my kind of cut down war game version. And if if viewers have thoughts about how to resolve the issue of you know why is a flying wizard not totally overpowered on the battlefield in your campaign, I would love to see comments like that in uh, on our YouTube. Actually, it would be very helpful. Or, or join our Discord server and tell me there. Personally, I again, I can't get my head out of just sort of normal small party D and D tactics, and and I love flying as a as a you know, I just love um, I love it as a gate, right? As sort of like introducing it early with monsters that fly, and how do, how do players who are not able to fly deal with that, or then how does the game adapt as a couple players can fly? And I think it's super fun. To play uh, scenarios, just encounters where flying is intrinsically a part of it. Of course, I do feel the need at that point to get out the battle mat and have miniatures, and then yeah. of course my my worst habits take out over, and I will overdo it and make a ton of terrain and other nonsense, uh, which is probably not not necessarily a good plan. But um, you know, we did have one of our one of our um, dungeon design dashes, as I recall, is set on a floating island and. Which means that the players must have flight to get there, right? So floating island, a flying lich. Yeah. If you search our YouTube channel for flying, you're going to see two shows. You're going to see that dungeon design dash. You're going to see this show, which you're watching now. Well, now, now I'm very much inclined, Dan, to to go dust off the characters that we used for that old boss fight game and chuck them at that at that uh, dungeon design dash and see how it goes. Maybe I'll do that at some point. That's a good. That's a good thought. That would be. That would actually. I. That would be a nice live play, actually. Yeah. But more importantly, Paul, the next time you and I play and I DM you, I will definitely have a flying wizard with a fireball wand to see see what <laughs> see see how well you like it then, buddy. You get some commentary at that down up on the business end of that business. Cool. Excellent. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Uh, viewers, if you have thoughts on flying, how it's affected your D&D campaign, how do you deal with a a a, a wizard who's able to hover and, and uh, douse the battlefield in fireballs? Uh, leave us some comments here in the YouTube uh, video. We'd love to hear from you. And we're curious uh, what your experience has been like. Maybe that will guide some future discussions here on the show. Definitely. Uh, look forward to that. And of course, remember, you can like, follow, and subscribe to us. We're on YouTube and Twitch and Facebook and GitHub and TikTok. And we do have the handle Wandering DMs on all those sites. So please look for us there. I'm still waiting, Dan, for some of that TikTok content. I'm very yeah, excited it's... to see it. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> He says, <laughs> right before it gets banned in the country. <laughs> Viewers, if you um, if you prefer to listen to this show in audio-only podcast format, you can do so. Those podcasts are available on our website at wanderingdms.com. 
or through various podcast carriers such as iTunes, Spotify, and Podcast. If you're listening to the show right now from one of those sites and it offers the ability to do so, please rate and review our show. That helps other users of the site find us, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, huge thanks to the patrons who support the show here. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Just like Paul said at the top of the show, among the different tiers, every single one of them gets you access to our Discord server where the conversation about flying or war games or anything about D&D or horror continues 24-7 around the clock. And we would love to see you uh, see you join us there, as a matter of fact. So uh, again, if you didn't see the Thanksgiving game, if you're doing something else uh, this past week, go check that out. That was one of our favorite games. And we were like super excited about how that ended, actually. Um, if you are traveling at the moment, whether by plane or by car, maybe someplace in Connecticut or someplace else, we hope you have an easy rest of your travel and you get home safe and, and rested and things like that. Um, and we'll be on uh, the Discord server for the after chat in about 10 minutes, both Paul and my today. I think that's right, Paul. We're both available. Yep, absolutely. Good, good. And then, uh, of course, uh, we'll be back uh, next week. We're live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.